I wanted to ask you if you might think back on your life and um, remember some times when you experienced true humility. Um, as you can imagine, as an old man, I've experienced true humility many times, most often preceded by perfect stupidity. Um, but since I've been converted, I think my most humble moments have been in the Word of God realizing just who it is who died for me. And I know, for those of you who grew up in the church, it's like Muzak sometimes. It's like background music. Jesus came and died for me. And if you stop and think about it for about 120 seconds, deeply, exactly who you are, what you've done, what you've thought, how you've been unloving and unkind and ungenerous and mean-spirited. and I'm giving you a personal list now. <laughs> um, how you... Maybe not you. How I blasphemed God. How I cursed God. How I cursed His servants who tried to witness to me. And yet, and yet, how he he's he's loved me and he saved me and he pulled me out of the uh, you know as the psalmist says out of the miry clay right. So my my point is, if we're if we're in the Word of God and we're understanding anything at all, we understand humility. We understand what we deserved and we understand what he's done for us, and that should engender great humility in each one of our lives. Just. A little bit about what the Bible says about humility. You heard the text read, God incarnate is going to wash the dirty, stinky, smelly feet of His creatures. This is, an, this is a stunning account. There's almost, there, there, yeah, He died for us. There's, there's, there's kind of a nobility to that. But there's no nobility to washing feet. But God does this. And why is God doing this? He tells us in the text. You're supposed to go to school on this. So am I, right? You, do you understand what I've done for you, He said. He's our model. He's our model of humility. Which always manifests itself in love and service. Biblical humility, spiritual humility, Christian humility always manifests itself in love and service. And so we see this in the text. But just some random things that the Bible says about humility. Proverbs 11.2 When pride comes, dishonor comes. But with the humble is wisdom, God says. You know Isaiah 66.2, I quote it often. But to this one I will look, God says, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word, Matthew 18.4. He who humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of God. That's uh, not insignificant, I would think. The one who humbles himself is the greatest in the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 5.6 Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Psalm 25.9 God teaches the humble His way. 
Are you hearing this, beloved? Are you hearing the premium that God puts on humility? And we know that there's different kinds of humility in the world, but there's only one kind of humility that pleases God. It's, it's the Christ-centered, the Christ-driven humility. I love Him. This is what He's told me to do, so I know I'm not naturally humble, so God, help me be a humble man. Help me practice humility. Help me be, yeah, a tool in your hand, a humble tool in your hand in the world. Now, you know what God says about the proud, right? It's not good. <laughs> okay, do I, do I need it? I just want to prepare you. <laughs> For those of you who are proud, it's not good. God says, James 4.6, I am opposed to the proud. Now, does it get any worse than that? I'm just asking. Does it get any worse than to have omnipotent deity against you? You know, this is the thing about mankind. Everybody's walking around with their chest stuck out, you know. It's all about me. It should be all about me. I'm great. I'm awesome. You know, we don't talk like this, but this is the, this is the background dialogue in our heart and in our mind. God doesn't just disagree with the proud. He opposes the proud. I frequently quote Romans 8.31 to you, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? But here's the deal. If God is against us, what? We could flip it. Who could be for us? Who could possibly help me if omnipotent deity is against me? If, if omnipotent deity opposes me in my pride, my arrogance, my self-absorption, my self-love, my self-importance, you know, God's always calling His people out of dead stuff, right? Out of stuff that will never bring you joy. God is always calling your, His people out of that. So He's calling you out of pride and into humility. This is not some, you know, so we can bludgeon ourselves with how humble we are. God actually means for you to come out of pride and into humility for your very own pleasure. <laughs> okay? He's always bringing us and teaching us Joy. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. But here's the rest of James 4, 6. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. <laughs> Amen? He gives grace to the humble. The thing that you and I need more than anything else, grace God gives to those who are humble before him. Some of you will know well Psalm 51. This is the psalm David penned after he repented of his great sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. David's saying, You know, I could go do some religious thing, and I just read to you earlier from Psalm 51, but David says, I know you're not interested in some religious thing, you're interested in a contrite heart, a humble and contrite heart. Heart. This is the heart that God will not despise. God is looking for this, beloved, in us. We call ourselves Christians. 
Psalm 51.17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O Lord, You will not despise. Augustine, 4th century theologian, converted in Milan, he says this about pride. As pride was the beginning of sin, so humility is the beginning of the true Christian. I mean, we can test ourselves right here, right? As we look at humility. As we look at this God-modeled act of humility. We can test ourselves. Are we growing in spiritual humility? Augustine continues, For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and what do you think is the third thing? Humility. I'm just... You know, this is one of those sermons that it's just God saying, this is what I want for you. This is how I want you to live. Look how I lived. Look how God incarnate did it. This is how I expect you to live if you're going to walk with me. So in John chapter 13, we have this, you know, we have the fact of this awesome God who speaks trillions of galaxies into existence, that the great I am, El Shaddai, Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim, the Almighty Sovereign Governor of the universe, He's on His knees and He's washing feet. Now, you just have to think about this again. Uh, give it 120 seconds and you'll be stunned at this. This is stunning. God's doing this. God is doing this. Some of us could never envision doing it. <laughs> and I, hey, listen, I'm not just talking about figurative, I'm not just talking about literally washing feet. I'm talking about the, the figurative equivalent. It's not common anymore that people wash other people's feet. That was a kind of a cultural thing in the first century. We'll talk more about it in a minute. But there certainly is a figurative equivalent. Right? We can be humble. We can be humble. We'll talk more about it as we go through the text. So, Alpha and Omega... The first and the last, He shows us what humility looks like. The greatest being in the cosmos, God, He shows us what humility looks like. It's love and service. It's always this. So let me just remind you where we are. <clears throat> John 13, Jesus is about, I don't know, 18 hours from the cross. This is His last night as merely a man on the earth. Uh, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. The Pharisees are trying to kill him. Mary has anointed him. We saw some months ago when we were still in John with costly perfume. He's, he, he smells like a king. He smells like an earthly king. He has that scent of royalty on him. He's made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem to the cries of Hosanna. And now he's spending his last hours with his men. You heard the text read, verse 1. So it's the feast of the Passover. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He will spend his last hours with his men. Next week, we'll see, he'll dismiss Judas. So the evil one will be gone. 
And He'll spend His last hours with those who love Him. Teaching them, praying for them, teaching us, praying for us before He sacrifices Himself for us. So the Lamb of God has come to offer Himself as a sin sacrifice. This is the last Passover of the Old Covenant. Okay? All the preceding Passovers pointed to this one. The actual blood of the actual Lamb of God will be spilt on this Passover. Everything will change from this point on. The last Passover of the Old Covenant. And the first communion, which we will celebrate tonight, the first communion of the New Covenant. We'll see in the weeks ahead. So, godly men would no longer look back to the Passover in Egypt. Godly men now look to the look back to the cross in Jerusalem. So everything is going to change in the next 24 hours. And you would think Jesus has got a few things on his mind, you know? I mean, it's like he's about to sacrifice himself. He's going to be in the grave and then he's going to be raised and then he's going to ascend. You think, well, maybe he's got some stuff on his mind, but what does he do? (laughs) Don't you love this about God? He notices nobody's washed anybody's feet. Let me ask you, are you the kind that notices what needs to be done? Are you the kind that that notices what needs to be done and just does it, right? Is that your temperament? Is that how you're wired? Um, So, (laughs) Jesus is not preoccupied with Himself. He's preoccupied with loving His own. You have to love the, the, the way verse 1 ends there. It says that He loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the extreme. He's not only going to bleed out for them, He washes their feet. It's just stunning to me. It's just stunning, the condescension. It made me think of Jeremiah 31.3. You know the great text. God tells uh, His chosen people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I, I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. It says, I never quit loving you. I never will quit loving you. Expect love, love, and more love from Me. <laughs> this is how God loves His people, right? An everlasting love. I, I did a survey in the Old and New Testament. I found 44 references to the everlasting love of God extended to His people. Everlasting. Which is to say, endless, ceaseless, unending, undying. And the most remarkable thing is, it's eternal. And of course, our minds can't quite, quite, well, we can't even get close to grasping this. From eternity past, God loved His people. Before time began, God loved His There never was a time when God didn't love His people. He's always loved His people long before He spoke the earth into existence. This is everlasting love. There's no beginning is what I'm trying to say. There's no beginning. And of course we know there's no end. You've never been loved like this. You never will be loved like this. (laughs) Except by Him. 
I know this is a simple passage, but it gets me pretty excited to think about the realities that we see here. Over in 1 John 3.1, John, same guy that wrote this Gospel, he said, Behold what manner of love God has bestowed on us. It's like, I can't even begin to tell you what manner of love God has bestowed on us. I can't even begin to talk about it. Human language, human language doesn't get there, right? He needs some of those words that men are not permitted to speak that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 12. The Bible says God is love. He not only loves, He is love. And nothing can separate us from that love. You know how Paul finishes Romans 8. He loves us and nothing can separate us. Verse 2, the devil has already put into the heart of Judas to betray the Lord. Of course, this is the last supper and uh, I just gave you a small mini discourse on the love of God, but there's one man in this group who will reject the love of God. Judas. The, infam the infamous name. He will reject the love of God. And you say, well, how does he do that? Why would he do that? Why would a man do that? I don't know! But men do it all the time! They just reject God. I don't truly, there's no rational explanation why anyone would reject Jesus Christ. There is no rational explanation. There's only this insane commitment to my self-love. That's, that's the only way I think you could begin to talk about it or think about it. Well, why does He do it? He loves the darkness. We learned about it way back in John 3.19. Why do men reject God? Because they love the darkness. They hate the light. They love the darkness. It's insane. But men love the darkness. We'll talk more about Judas next week. But I want you to... Here's what I want to say to you about this text. The devil's not pulling Judas' strings like a puppet, okay? The devil's involved, but Judas has made his decision. Okay, this is not about uh, Judas being controlled by Satan. This is about Judas being in concert with Satan. That's what this is about, okay? So I don't want you to misunderstand the text. I don't want us to feel sorry for Judas because the devil picked on him. Judas has already made his decision. Judas has decided not to go with this, this Christ, this version of Christ. I don't want, hey, if he's a ruling, king, uh, uh, a ruling earthly king, hey, I, I might want to hang out in his court, but apparently that's not the direction this is going in. I'm out of here. <clears throat> so, my point is, I want us to have a right understanding of what Satan can and cannot do. Satan can't control your heart. You control your heart. Yeah, he can, he can tempt you. So, Let's make sure we understand what's happening here. Judas has made his decision. You know, uh, yeah, verse 3. Knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come forth from God and He was going back to God. Let me just stop there. 
This text is just saying, again, reiterating, He's God. He's God, and we're about to watch God do a stunning thing, a stunning act of love and service, a stunning act of humility, a stunning act of condescension. Okay, here's the deal. Jesus could have had... He could have had some angels come down and wash the feet, right? I mean... He could have called some demons in to wash the feet. Demons have to, de- demons have to obey His command. We've seen, it in the, we've seen it numerous times in the, in the New Testament. He could have had Satan himself come in and wash the feet. He could have had some chimpanzees come in and do it. He could have just said, be clean. And they would have been. He has all of these options. He's the sovereign God of the universe. He has all of these options. What does He do? He gets on His knees and He washes the feet of It's just stunning. (laughs) Don't you love that your God is like this? He doesn't need to be like this. In fact, He shouldn't be like this. But He is like this. I don't know. I I get pretty excited about this text. Um, He's God. So, it sounds like an opportunity for you and me to learn something here. I'm just, I'm just saying. You're not God. Everybody agree? You're not God. You're not as important as God. And who's ever offended you in your life, or whoever it is in your life that God's put in your way that you need to serve, they're not as bad as Judas. You're not God. They're not as bad as Judas. Maybe there's some middle ground here where you could love and serve in humility, right? You say, Jim, I, I don't know who that would be. Okay, start asking God who that would be. Who can I love and serve in humility? You know, that's, that's a really good opportunity to share the Gospel. Right? As you serve in humility. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 20, 26. You guys know this. Whoever wishes to be great among you shall be what? Your servant. Famous 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon said, the best definition of humility I ever heard was, and this is perfect, to think rightly about yourself. Okay? You won't be humble lest you think rightly about yourself, but if you think rightly about yourself, you will, as a matter of consequence, be humble. You know what you deserve before God. And you know how God has showered grace, mercy, love, and compassion upon you. So, Spurgeon went on, If a man says, Sir, I am nothing, then I reply, You are a young Christian. If another man says to me, Sir, I am less than nothing, then I reply, You are an old Christian. For the more mature a Christian is, the less they become in their own estimation. You know, some think, well, this is some degrading uh, teaching of the Bible, some demeaning teaching. No, Jesus says, to be the greatest, you will become the servant. You will exercise humility. Humility is, again, always exercised in love and service. So this is, I mean, you can live by the world's standards or you can live by the Son of God's standards. 
Luke 14.11, Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and he who humbles himself shall be exalted. So you decide, I'm going to believe the world or I'm going to believe the Word of God. It's one of those seeming paradoxes in the economy of God. Humble yourself to be exalted. You know, it's, it, you see this in the Word of God all the time. You must die to live, right? You must give yourself away to find yourself. I mean, the, the Bible is just full of these things, right? So if you would be exalted, you would be a humble servant. The King of kings and Lord of lords is going to give us a lesson in true humility in this text. And I couldn't help but think of Philippians 2. You know that great text. I'll just share it with you. Just, just a couple of verses. Although Jesus existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself and humbled Himself. So I'll set the cultural stage for you. They've borrowed this venue, Right? This is the Last Supper. This is the upper room. They've borrowed the venue. There's no slave there. Normally, the, the, the feet washing happens with the slave. In every residence, there would be pots of water at the door, and the slave, if there is a slave, he would wash the feet of those coming in, right? I mean, it's uh, first century. Sandals are big. Streets are dust, dusty. Feet are dirty. It's just, it is what it is. And when you come into someone's house, the feet are washed. The slave does it. Or the lowest person in the household would do it. Now, none of the disciples thought of this. Does anybody remember why? They were having an argument. Does anybody remember what the disciples were arguing about? Who would be the greatest in the kingdom? <laughs> now, how can you think about washing someone, someone's feet when you're engaged in establishing your bona fides as the greatest in the kingdom of God, right? So, they're having this argument. The towel is there. The water is there. But nobody's doing anything. And the Son of God takes the initiative, right? <laughs> they're too busy talking about how great they're going to be in the kingdom. It's, uh, yeah. They were too busy debating their greatness. And let me just revisit verse 4 and 5. God gets up. He lays aside His garments. He takes the towel. He girds Himself. Then He pours water into the basin and He begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. Okay, I just... I just kind of want you to put yourself in the room. How would you feel if you were one of the twelve? Oh, and that's right. He washes Judas' feet too. The man he knows will be instrumental in his betrayal. How would you feel? You, they know he's God. Peter's already said it. Peter's made the confession. You are the Son of God. They know He's God. And He gets up. Can, 
Can you imagine the conviction that fell on these men? God begins to wash their feet. <laughs> it's just... It's stunningly powerful to think about this. Verses 6 and 9 through 9. And he came to Peter. And what does Peter say? You know what, what does Peter say? No! You can't, you'll never wash my feet. Never will you wash my feet. I won't let this happen. Peter knows. Yeah, he's talking to God. Of course, you know, Peter's always trying to tell God how it ought to be, right? But Peter says, Never! Peter was stumbling over that. God-ordained truth that every Jew stumbled over. Messiah did not come to be served. He came to serve. Oh, guess what? If you're a Christian tonight, He's called you to do the same thing. In the church and out in the world. Jesus said, if I don't wash you, Peter, you have no part in Me. And then Peter says, well, then just wash Me all over then. You know how Peter is. So verses 10 through 11, um, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So, what is Jesus saying? They are clean in Christ. So what's this? what's this about washing the feet. There's obviously a point being made here over and above the fact that the feet needed to be washed. Um, so what is the point that God is making here? We, in Christ, you know, you're saved once for all. You know, theologians talk about it like this. I was saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. It's kind of like a whole long thing but 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 we're in we're in Christ if we're in Christ we are positionally clean we we are cleansed by the blood but what's he talking about he's talking about the sin of the believer right he's talking about the sin of the believer you must deal with your sin just like you have to deal with your dirty feet the rest of you is clean but you have to deal with your dirty feet the metaphor is you have to deal with your sin every day deal with your sin this is the point. You're mine. You belong to me. Nothing can change that. Nothing can separate you from me, but you are called to deal with your sin. I'm dealing with your... The metaphor here, Peter, is I'm dealing with your sin because we all are still struggling in our sin. But we know that great promise, 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And He says, not all of you are clean. He's obviously talking about Judas. Jesus knows who belongs to Him and He knows who doesn't. He knows if it's real and He knows if it's not. You know, He, he knows if it's... Uh, you know, if it's, if it's a heart change thing or if it's just some religious stuff you're doing, He knows this. Actually, you know it too, if it's true of you. He's talking about Judas 
Judas has rejected Jesus. A man who got more revelation than... I don't, I don't know if there's ever been a man that got more revelation than Judas. But he rejected Christ. It will be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus says, for those of you who have the light and turn away from it. So, it's always John 5.40. I keep going back to John 5.40. Don't ever forget John 5.40. You know, we, we, we have people in our lives and we, we love them and we witness to them and we witness to them and we witness to them and they can't see it, they can't see it or they won't see it, they won't see it. They won't, they won't humble themselves. They won't submit before God. They're too proud. They're too arrogant. They're too self-consumed. But John 5.40 says, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are unwilling to come to Me that you might have life. Listen, those who end up in hell, it's because they were unwilling. You know, I've told you this before, but you know, people say, why doesn't God reveal Himself? What else do you want Him to do? What else would you have God do except to come as a man and walk the earth, keep the law, and sacrifice Himself for you? What else would you have Him do? He has revealed Himself. Oh, well, I don't believe the Bible. Well, that's your problem. It's your problem. This is the Word of God. Listen, beloved, don't apologize for the Word of God in the world. Just tell people, listen, hey man, I love you, so I'm going to tell you that this is the truth. You know, if you reject it, that's your business. That's between you and God. I, I can't make you accept it, but it is the Word of God. Right? I lovingly tell you this. Well, I don't believe it. I, there's a lot of scholarly... No, well, actually, if you do the scholarship, you find out there's tremendous weight and evidence for the Bible being the Word of God. I mean, of course, you and I know it is because we're born again. It speaks to us. We see and feel and touch and hear our God speaking to us through it. So I'll just ask you the most important question you'll ever be asked. What have you decided about Jesus? And there's two places to be. I have really given my life away to Him. And it's visible in my life. Everybody in my orbit knows I love Him. Or there's the other place. I have not really given myself away to Him. He's really not... You know, he's okay as a religious icon, but he is not my Lord. I refuse to obey him in certain areas. I don't think he's right about that. You know, I talked to you the story. One time a young woman told, told Karen, well, I'm just going to have to disagree with God on that. It's like, <laughs> seriously? You, you dis oh, you disagree with God on that? <laughs> it's like, mama mia. I, I, it's, you, just, it's, you can't believe the arrogance of some people the haughtiness and the arrogance. So, I, I, I'm just saying, this is, this is about you, right? Do you know Him? Do you love Him? Have you believed in your heart? You know, the, 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 
the Romans 10, 9, 10 thing. Have you believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth? You know, that's not a one-time thing. That's something, you know, the true believer is always believing in his heart and confessing with his mouth. It never stops until the day we die. We are believing in our heart. We are confessing with our mouth. It never stops. The old things have passed away. The new things have come, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. So, I just ask you, you know, this is a perfect opportunity. Where are you with Christ? You know, it's, it's important, obviously. It's important. So, if you need my counsel, I'm happy to counsel with you on that. Maybe you just need to go home and get alone with God and talk to Him. So Jesus washes the feet of the man who will betray Him. I think this is another opportunity for you and I to learn something. <laughs> um, God calls us to love not just our families and our friends and our fellow Christians, but even those who have wronged us and offended us and hurt us and harmed us. This is one of those big things God calls His people to do. This is a hard thing. If you've lived very long as a Christian, you know this is a hard thing that He calls us to do. But what you find is, when you decide to live this way, yes, we have our fallen moments, we must confess and repent, we realize God is calling me to show kindness to this person. What you find is, it's, and, and science has actually proven this, when you give up the hate, right? You, and you give up that burden of carrying around this hate, your heart's at ease. You know, this is not just a good moral rule. This is, it's good for your health. And we know what Jesus... Jesus says a lot of things like this. Let me just give you a couple. Whoever hits you on the cheek, what are you supposed to do, Josh? Give him a... Give it right back to him, right? Turn the other one. If someone takes your coat, what are you supposed to do? Give him your shirt also. Now, this doesn't come natural, does it? Maybe it comes natural to you. Maybe you're all spiritual and all that. This does not come natural to me. Jesus says, whoever takes your property, don't ask for it back. He says, blessed are those who curse, no, bless those who curse you, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. This is big, advanced, mature Christianity. This is hard. Maybe it's not hard for you. This is hard for me. This is not my natural inclination. I'm just being honest with you. But this is what my Lord says to me. This is what my God says to me. Jesus says, if you love only those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even tax collectors, which is the metaphor for the worst sinners possible, do the same. Right? Luke 6.35, Jesus said, 
If we live like this, our reward will be great and we will give evidence that we are the sons of the Most High for God, who is our example. He is kind to ungrateful and evil men. God incarnate just washed the dirty feet of the man who will be instrumental in his own death. I think there's a lesson here for us. A huge lesson. We need to understand what God is saying. And I'm just betting. I'm just guessing. Okay? Maybe I'm wrong. I'm betting there's someone in your life that has terribly hurt you and injured you, abused you, betrayed you, wronged you, and offended you. I'm just betting. And you know what God is saying to you and me tonight? <laughs> I know who it is. <laughs> oh, I got a couple. Forgive them and love them like I have loved you. You sometimes kind of wish John 13 wasn't in the Bible, right? <laughs> Our God loves this way and serves this way. And so, obviously, it falls to me to follow His model. God is calling us to figuratively wash the person that comes to your mind. The one who's hurt you the worst. God is calling you to figuratively wash their feet. That's what He's calling us to. So God says, My children are to be like me in this. 1 Peter 3.9 I remember preaching through 1 Peter and this has never left me. And it's, uh, it's convicting to me all the time. God says to His people, you do not return evil for evil. But what do we do? Does anybody remember? 1 Peter 3.9 when evil comes, what do we do? What do what's the command? Pardon me? Repay with good. Repay with good. The text says, give a blessing. I understand this is supernatural. I understand everything in your natural body, your natural self does not want this. God says, do not return evil for evil but instead give a blessing. You heard the text read 12-17. through 17. Jesus explains, He says, do you, 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 do you know what I've done to you? I'm your teacher. I'm your Master. I'm your Lord. I'm your God. I've served you. Go do the same. This is what He's saying here. Go do the same. Exercise humility toward one another. I guarantee you, the who is greatest in the kingdom argument is over. <laughs> okay? At least for a, a couple of hours anyway. The, I don't think these men could, have, could ever forget what had just happened. God washed their feet. I bet they still haven't forgotten it. That God washed their feet. If you love one another, serve one another, Jesus says. If you do these things, you will be blessed, he says. What does blessed mean? Happy. 
Matthew 23, I'll close with this, 11-12, through 12, Jesus says, the greatest among you shall what? You tell me, I know you know this. The greatest among you shall be your servant. So, will you dare to be great? This is what I ask you tonight. God is asking you and He's asking, will you dare to be great? Not in the eyes of men, not by their definitions, but by the definition of God. In all humility, I will love and serve. Right? This is what the Lord is saying to us. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself, he will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself, he shall be exalted. This is a huge text, man. I I just confess, you know, it's like, I studied this text this week and it's like, you know, (laughs) you know how it is when you're in the Word of God and it's like you can just, it's just really hard and you're getting pushed around a lot. You know know what I'm talking about? (laughs) So, uh, because these things don't come natural to me at all. Um, You know, this is what I mean when I say you must be in the sanctification fight. You must be in the fight to become like Christ. You won't do it naturally. It doesn't just happen by osmosis. You don't just stare at your navel and you become like Christ. You know, you're in the Word. You're being changed by it. God's doing what He does. Convicting you like I was this week. This is a great Word, beloved. I hope that you'll take advantage of what God has said to us tonight. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Um, you guys... Thank you. Everybody's been here before.